The topics and opinions expressed on the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4WN Radio, its employees, or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4WN Radio. Well, hello and welcome to Fearless, Fabulous You. I am your host, Melanie Young, and you're listening to W4WN, the Women for Women Network, where I help you make healthier choices to live a happier life. You can listen to this show live on Wednesdays at 12 noon Eastern, and of course, all my shows are permanently podcast to iHeart.com and the free iHeart app because we want you to think about your well care every day. This week is World Immunization Week. You know, there's a there's a, a health week or health month going on all the time. Um, but today in our first segment, we are going to talk about why immuni- immunizations matter. It's a big word. We're going to see vaccinations. Interesting facts that I want to share with you about World Immunization Week. It's a global public health campaign to raise awareness and increase rates of immunization against vaccine-preventable diseases around the world. Immunization can protect against 25 different infectious agents or diseases from infancy to old age, including measles, pertussis, polio, tetanus, and diphtheria. Now, I don't know if you all remember, but I remember as a little girl going to get my first vaccines. In fact, funny story, my photo was in the paper holding my little Maltese puppy really hard and grimacing as they gave me my first, um, I think it was my polio shot. And I remember getting all the shots and hating it. Um, But glad I did because the good news is many of these major diseases are almost eradicated. Um, Not quite in some areas, um, but like smallpox, I think is um, polio still is prevalent in um, several third world countries. But here's the thing. I was like four or five or six when I had those shots. And I wonder now uh, in my 50s if they're still valid. I mean, is there a sell-by date on... (laughs) on your tetanus, on your shots. So I have invited an expert in this area to help me and help you understand why immunizations matter and which immunizations you need at what age, starting from uh, being an infant to um, your grandel's grand young age, well into your your, uh, senior life. Her name is Dr. Patricia Salber. She is a board-certified internist, former emergency room physician, and founder of the Doctors the Doctor Ways In. It's an award-winning healthcare media company providing high-quality content on health and innovation. It's a great go-to site, uh, and I got to tell you why I'm going to underscore great go-to site because many of the information you find on the internet is not. It's skewed, it's sponsored, it's misinformation, and it can be scary information, particularly if you've been diagnosed with an illness. So it's really important to go to reliable sources, vetted 
by board-certified doctors. Besides, always speaking with your medical practitioner. So, Dr. Pat Salber, welcome to Fearless Fabulous You. I'm glad to be here. Well, I like your site. I find it very, you know, because I'm always researching information as I prepare for my shows. I put a lot of effort into it. And why I decided, I mean, you, we, you know, you, you specialize in a lot of areas, but I wanted to zero in on immunization because there's been a little controversy about it and a movement against vaccination. So I'd like you to really lay out why it matters to assuade anybody who thinks it doesn't. Sure. Well, I, I think you, um, started on that conversation with the story that you just told. Immunizations are, I believe, one of the most important medical advances in human history. You know, we now can immunize, as you said, against a number of conditions that affected both children and adults. Um, And these aren't things that just uh, cause annoying illnesses, but they were associated with serious side effects, and some of them uh, even were associated with fatalities. Before we started on the regular immunization programs that are familiar to people, they vary a little bit depending on exactly uh, what state you live in or what country you live in, um, these, these diseases were very, were very prevalent. Once we had the um, push to get everybody immunized, those illnesses dropped by 90%. Can you think of anything else that we've done in medicine that has that kind of success? So that's why, to me, it's very distressing uh, when I uh, read about or talk to people who really have misunderstandings about immunizations. Um, They have come to believe in myths about immunizations, and unfortunately, some of them are under the sway of research that was fraudulent, that has since been retracted, uh, but continues to circulate in some parts of the country, and I've led people to, uh, it's mostly mothers and, and fathers who are saying, I'm not going to get my kids immunized. And um, I hope in this conversation that we can talk about uh, why uh, they really should get their kids immunized and to understand um, really what was behind the whole anti-vaccination um, uh, research or 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 information that's been propagated by uh, by some people. Well, I think we should just address that head on. And I want to state this. You know, I I find that schools and hospitals are petri dishes for diseases. Um, and, and, and I'm not a parent, okay? I've never had a child, but I have been hospitalized. And I have seen many people get sicker when they're in the hospital because they, they contracted, you know, they got infections because they got into the hospital. But likewise, I've seen mothers who have gotten sick, their children have brought home illnesses. And, you know, it's like if you think it's okay not to immunize, immunize your child and they get sick, you're now putting other children at risk. So that's going to be my argument from where I stand as a non-mother. But you as a doctor explain it because um, to the moms who are going, oh, no, my kid's going to get like, you know, autism or something. Explain why people think it's not good to get immunization. Um, and then I just give one point why it is, but you'll add more. 
So okay, so let's let's start head on because it's this association between vaccination and autism that mm-hmm. has fueled a lot of the anti-vaccination uh, efforts that are around the country. This was based on on research that was done by a scientist. Um, uh, just a sec. That was done by a scientist who who actually. It appears that the um, science, that the studies that he did, that there was that there was fraud, mm-hmm. um, and people have gone back. It was published actually in a good journal. It was published in in the Lancet, which is a good journal. Um, mm-hmm. But when um, people went back to to look at it, uh, they found that there were all sorts of methodologic problems with the way that it was done, and they ultimately retracted it. And since that time, they have, um, you know, there's been a lot of studies because of this anti-vaccination uh, um, effort that's going on. There have been a lot of studies to try and determine, is there any possibility that there's a link between getting immunization and, uh, and, and ending up with autism? And it's been completely debunked that there's a relation. There is no relationship between getting your kids immunized and them later developing autism. I think part of the reason why this took hold is because parents uh, tended to notice the onset, uh, the, the really obvious symptoms of autism around the same ages when kids are, are getting immunized. So they, so, so they mm-hmm. made a connection, which is you know that's not that's not surprising. I my kid was fine. He got immunized, and and and, and then he has autism. But it, it turns out now that we know more subtle symptoms of autism, you can actually show that many of these kids, you know, had already started developing their autism, and that it was just coincidental that the symptoms became apparent to the parents at the time that they got vaccinated. So this should not be any uh, anyone's reason at all for not getting their kids immunized. And the reasons for getting them immunized, as you mentioned, is that it prevents what, what are known as vaccine-preventable diseases, right? These are right. diseases that the vaccine can, pre- can prevent. And it, and it eliminates the side effects, the serious illnesses, and even deaths that are, that are related to these diseases that are completely preventable. Exactly. So I'm going to talk about flu for just a second, if you don't mm-hmm. mind, because sure. I think this last flu season was a really um, was really enlightening when it comes to thinking about vaccines. And as we know, it, it was a bad flu season, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of deaths, including a lot of deaths of children. Right. The CDC has just taken a look at the kids who, you know, trying to determine, you know, what, what was behind the kids who ended up uh, dying from flu this year. And they found that, um, that only a small number of the kids who died had actually been fully immunized against the flu. So even though, even though the vaccine this year wasn't as effective Right. As it has been in other years, it still um, seemed to prevent people, prevent kids from either getting the flu or if they got the flu, getting so sick that they die from it. So a really good example, I think, of how important vaccination can be. Well, I agree. It's interesting. My husband and I both were vaccinated for the flu and he got the worst case of the flu imaginable. I mean, he's alive, but it was he was flattened for over a month. So, you know, but but I think that if he had not been vaccinated, it could have been much worse. And I think that's the key. It's it it, it can it can prevent or reduce 
you know, um, the effects. And, and I, I have up on this site um, some of the uh, serious vaccine-preventable diseases tracked by the World Health Organization, diphtheria, hepatitis B, which you see a lot of on the news, measles, um, which I want to talk about because adult-onset measles can be pretty bad, meningitis, mumps, pertussis, rubella, tetanus, tuberculosis, yellow fever, and something I've never even heard of, poliomyelitis. Um, that's polio, poliomyelitis. That's just oh, that's, polio. that's, that's, the oh, big, okay. that's the big word for polio. Saying. Which I realized, and when I was doing my research, has not even been eradicated. I mean, many people know you have FDR had polio. Like, I thought polio was, like, done. But no, it's not. And, and you know, a lot of people go, oh, this is a third world problem. Okay, well, first of all, that's a nasty, horrible way to think. It's everybody's problem because we are the world. But it is also a first world problem. And, and we have to address that right on. Here's what I want to know for the woman listening who has a child what when do you start getting your child immunized and what are the levels for like the, what childhood vaccinations are essential or recommended sure so we can go through those but what i want to emphasize for your listeners is that, that there are really good reliable websites where you can see the recommended immunization schedules both for children and adolescents and also for adults, mm -hmm. and I would really refer your readers to those sites because they're not going to remember if I rattle off right. a whole list of uh, immunizations that they should get. And right. um, one of the most reliable, and and I, I know for some reason we've developed um, negative feelings uh, around some of our institutions and the Centers for Disease Control is one that seems to be taking some hits lately. But I want to tell you that this organization is actually one of the premier health organizations yes. in the world. Oh, yeah. And the information that they put out is highly vetted by, you know, really smart people, the, the, the best people that they can find. And it is as reliable as health information that you can find anywhere else. So I would refer your listeners to the CDC website uh, to look for to look for both the children and adolescent as well as as adult immunization schedules. So um, there's about 14 um, immunizations that kids should get. And the immunization schedules are pretty complicated. That's why they're laid out in a graphic form on these websites mm -hmm. to show you that there are some immunizations that you get as, as young as two months. It's recommended kids get as young as two months. Mm -hmm. And others that you get, and you, you, and you may get two doses, you may get three doses, and there are other ones that you get when you're preteens and when you're a teenager. And a lot of times people forget that, you know, you kind of think, oh, I got my kid through, you know, he, he's past six years old, so he doesn't need immunizations anymore. And that's actually not the case. There are immunizations, uh, for example, uh, Gardasil, the one that's against uh, HPV, which is the human papillomavirus that mm -hmm. causes uh, cancer. Um, that 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 is a immunization that you give to to preteens and teens. So, um, so very very complicated schedules. But the pediatricians are on top of this. Uh, they now ca can cut down the number of shots that you get because they actually have combined their there are vaccines that combine more than one kind of shot all in what more than one kind of vaccine all in one shot so it's uh it's easier on on the child obviously who gets fewer shots and it's easier on the parents because you're not having to make uh, multiple visits to get the the immunizations done that's really terrific. And I, 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 I got to say the CDC is my, one of my go-tos as well for anything because you really want 
reliable, vetted sources, not, you know, what the blogger of the moment is saying, guys. And and it is complicated because um, you just mentioned different ages. I'm curious. As I said, I'm in my 50s now. I haven't, you know, the only immunization I've had since I've been a child was maybe a booster tetanus shot before I went hiking in Nepal and um, the flu shot. But is there, are there shots that we need to re-up as adults? And then after that, obviously I want to address senior citizens. Yeah, there are there are shots that need to be uh, re-upped. I mean, the flu you mentioned that we have to get every year because mm-hmm. uh, that's that's because the characteristics of the flu virus, which changes the strains that are circulating, change, right. and then the tetanus shot, as you mentioned. Um, but uh, um, there are uh, shots that you get when you get when you get older. Pneumococcal is a good example to prevent mm-hmm. getting. Uh, infections with pneumococcus like pneumonia or pneumococcal infections in your bloodstream, uh, as well as meningococcus. And then there's the hepatitis A and the hepatitis B. So these are all things that you should um, uh, take, you know, you should understand whether you've had them or not. And actually the CDC has a really nice quiz for adults. It takes you through um, your your, uh, age, your gender, your past Mm -hmm. history, whether you have any risk factors, and at the end, it says these are the shots that you should get as an adult. And I would urge people to go over and take that little quiz. It takes about, you know, two or three minutes, and you get the answer tailored, tailored to you. And I'm going to put that on my website, MelanieYoung.com, when I write up the show and post it, which you can live stream, again, on iHeart and also through my website, MelanieYoung.com. I'm curious, um, my mother is in her 80s. Now, I'm, I, I've not gotten the... Um, shingle shot, even though I'm in my 50s, I'm starting to wonder if I should. My mother did. Interesting, my mother got the shingle shot and got the shingles. So, you know, not everything's 100% perfect. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's, that's true. Um, the, the, sh- the shingle shot, people usually get uh, somewhere between 60 and 64. So you have a little ways to go before you need to worry about getting mm-hmm. that. Um, and, and that's if you've had the chicken pox. What if you've not had the chicken pox? As they say, if you've had the chicken pox, you should try the shingle shot. You, what if you've not had the chicken pox? Well, you know, here's the thing. Chicken pox, now, I, I, I'm old enough to, to tell you that I actually got chicken pox because it was way before they had the vaccine oh. for uh, chicken pox. It so is one of the most <laughs> contagious diseases around. So the chances of somebody making it to adulthood and not having had chicken pox is, is, is relatively uh, small. Right. And I think most doctors wouldn't, wouldn't test you. I'm not even sure if there, there probably is some test that you could do to look and see if you have immunity against chicken pox. They would probably just go ahead and offer you the, the uh, chicken pox, the shingles, the zoster shot. The zoster um, shot, right. As well. So, and then the pneumococcal, um, menococcal shots, those are recommended for people over 60 as well, or is it 70? Because that's a big yeah, problem with, with older uh, citizens. Yeah, it is. It is indeed. And it's usually um, uh, recommended that you get it at 65. So you can kind of remember that retirement and Social Security, well, I guess Social Security is now 66 or 67, but right about that time, right about that big birthday um, is the time that you should get your pneumococcal now, shot. I- here are two areas. When I, I'm a breast cancer survivor, and before I, um, when I was diagnosed, 
and I uh, knew I was in for a long haul with treatments, right? I wisely asked if there were any shots I should get and other uh, precautions before I started my treatment because I knew that my um, autoimmune system would be um, seriously compromised. I think I ended up getting just a flu shot. I can't remember if I got a tetanus shot or not. But, you know, when your system, when you are going through a bodily change, whether it's pregnancy or um, something like cancer treatment, are there considerations that women should make or make for their loved ones of a spouse in terms of um, vaccine immunizations and, and, and before they move into that journey? Sure, it certainly is something that you should bring up with your, uh, with your physician. And if you have time to be able to get immunized and for, uh, you know, the, the body to be able to react to the immunization, um, it probably is a wise uh, um, idea to do that. And you brought up pregnancy, which I think is really interesting. Because if you take the flu shot, which is the one that people have to get every year, you know, a lot of people think, oh, I shouldn't do that if I'm pregnant. In actual fact, you need it more than anyone else because right. the flu is a bad actor um, during pregnancy. Um, you, you're actually more at risk for having more serious illness and complications, so you definitely should get an immunization. Good point. And a lot of people don't think about these things. Um, and, you know, it, if you get sick during pregnancy, it could harm your feet. It could or could not, you know. I'm not a doctor, but you got to think about all those things. And I know, you know, speaking from first person with cancer, how susceptible you are to getting sick. Um, really, so important to discuss this with your medical practitioner. Now, the other area is traveling. Now, I, I traveled. I've been a global traveler. I, I know because I'm like the sophisticated girl to contact, to go to the website um, and do my research to see what vaccinations you need. Um, I'd like to talk about uh, you. you you are, uh, have been, in, you know, you've worked in the emergency room, you know the deal, you know how important preparedness is. What should people think about when they prepare to travel? And it doesn't even have to be overseas. It could be to another state or the Caribbean or whatever. What should we factor in when, we, when we're packing our suitcase to think about and to prepare for it to protect our health? Sure. So that's a really good, that's a really good uh, topic. And I, I too am a big traveler and I tend to like to travel to places that are, that are less developed. So I, I don't tend to go, go to Europe. I tend to go to um, <laughs> uh, the developing world or, or mm-hmm. rural areas to hike and so forth. And, and so I think there's a couple of things you need to do. The first one is you should just get on the web and go to a reliable website. CDC is a good one. The mm-hmm. World Health Organization, WHO, yeah. is another good one. And look and see what's, what's going on in the area of the world that you want to go to. I just went to the Peruvian Amazon. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to be, I mean, I knew that there was going to be risk for malaria. I knew right. that there was risk for Zika. Um, and so I, I wanted to know what my, what my risks were. And um, if you have an opportunity, so in addition to doing that, one time I forgot what country I was going to, but I ended up with recommendations that were different from WHO and the CDC, and so I needed a trusted advisor. I'm in uh, Kaiser Permanente, which is a big system uh, in mm-hmm. California and some areas right. of the country, and they have travel doctors. They have travel nurses. Right. So as I was able to call up and say, but do your homework first, right? So I was able to call up and say, look, this site says this and this site says that, 
and we were able to talk through and come up with a recommendation that I was comfortable was going to be my safest choice. So I think people right. need to do to do that. And then in terms of uh, what what you can do to be sure you're safe when you're on the road, you know, what do you what do you pack in your in your travel kit? Uh, mm-hmm. Again, you have to tailor it to where where you're where you're going. So mm-hmm. if you're going to um, if you're going to Europe, you probably don't need to worry about um, you know being sure that you have, uh, for example, a way to uh, keep your water clean or you know a water filter mm-hmm. or um, you know something that would be related more to uh, an area of the tropics. If you're going mm-hmm. hiking, you're going to want to put you know have some ace wraps, have some moleskin to you know prevent mm-hmm. blisters, have a way to treat a blister, maybe take some antibiotics just in case you get an infection from an injury. Um, so really think through what do you think what what do you think you're going to be exposed to? What are the worst case scenarios? And and pack your travel kit accordingly. And then of course don't forget that you have to take. Make sure you have enough. If you take medicines on a regular basis, make right. sure that you have enough. Exactly. And, and don't pack, pack them in your check-in. I was in Peru as well. I was in the Andes. And I knew to take, I, I mean, because I, I'm, I'm one of these people that something always happens. So I always take, um, I, I got a prescription for um, high altitude, altitude sickness. Um, I also take C-bands. Because sometimes when you're riding in cars and going up weaving mountains or you're in an ocean, you get seasick or motion sickness. And I find those C-bands that you can buy at the um, pharmacy really, really, really helpful, the drugstore. I always take um, medication, prescription medication for diarrhea. And I also, and I have no financial interest in this product, but I always take it daily when I'm traveling anywhere where I'm eating weird food is a Pepto-Pismo tablet. <laughs> it's because oh. I, <laughs> I, I eat for a living and drink for a living. So that's some, that for me is my personal one. And then um, uh, a really good corticosteroid if you're going anywhere where there's mosquitoes, because I've gotten, don't laugh, I've gotten weird rashes in so many places and ended up in emergency rooms in more places because of strange rashes you can't even imagine. I could do a story on around the world with rashes. And- uh, yeah, you could definitely get uh, <laughs> unusual rashes when you're traveling. Yeah, but we should talk a minute about mosquitoes because yeah. you know the best thing to do for mosquitoes is is not to treat your mosquito bite after you get it, but to prevent getting it in the first place. And this was you know a big thing for me when we went to the Amazon, although it oh, turned yeah. out we, we didn't encounter that many mosquitoes. Um, but lucky being you. Sure that you, you, yeah, very lucky. Um, you know, the big thing is is cover up as much of, of your skin as you can with clothes, and if right. you can impregnate those clothes with mosquito repellent, we did that. I had a I had a bunch of clothes that uh, when I bought them had mosquito repellent in them. Um, they're called buzz something. I buzz off, buzz off clothes. Yeah. Uh, but I but I had washed them enough that I, I didn't think they were still protected, so right. I was able to go down to my local travel store and and get the spray, and I sprayed all my clothes again, and, you know, wear a hat, wear, wear mm-hmm. uh, gloves, and then get a good good mosquito repellent. And, and, and really, and I hate to say it, the, the, but the best have D, which obviously a lot of people don't like. Um, I, uh, you know, I've done discussions on mosquito repellent, and I've tried a lot of natural ones. I've tried everything from Skin So Soft to, like, healthy rub-ons to you name it. Um, if you're going somewhere where it, it's really a serious infested situation, you're going to want like army level 
mosquito repellent. Sorry, but that's probably what you're going to want. <laughs> I, I agree. And I also, uh, so I, I have two resources on my site for people mm. who are traveling. One is I did a recent review of mosquito repellents. I called it, uh, you know, mosquito repellents in the age of Zika. Um, mm. And it reviews from a scientific basis. It was based on something called the medical letter, which is a, a wonderful um, review source that doctors use to try and stay up with the latest uh, uh, evidence-based information about drugs. Mm -hmm. And the other one that people might be interested in if they're traveling, because travel often conjures up visions of being out in the sunshine and laying on the mm -hmm. beach, uh, which raises the issue of being sure that you have a really good sunscreen. And I had an expert in sunscreen, I think he calls himself the sunscreen doctor, who mm -hmm. wrote an excellent review on, um, on what kinds of sunscreen you should get and what kinds of protection that you need to have. Well, absolutely. And um, I, of the many dermatologists that I've had on the show, almost everybody universally says go for one that has zinc oxide in it. Um, that uh, you'll get the, and because there's lots of different listings. And so um, when I was recently in Hawaii, I bought uh, one that has zinc oxide first up in the list. Uh, and for my face, so it's got a little more botanicals in it because I use a different one on my face, which is super sensitive. And, and the reason I bring it is I did a show on rosacea and the doctor talked about it because I have super, super sensitive skin. And then I have maybe like a cheaper one, you know, like no ad or something for my body. But it's really important to get a good sunscreen and likewise, um, something to ease your skin if you do get... Um, a burn because it's it's so serious in so many ways. So it's a really good point. I want to just let our listeners know before we go that the website we're talking about is called the Doctor Ways In www.thedoctorwaysin.com, and there, there's just lots of information on here um, on many many topics. So it is a very good resource and. I want to thank you, Dr. Pat Sauber, for joining me today on Fearless Fabulous You to talk about this really important topic of immunization. Thank you. It was a fun conversation, and I hope that the listeners learned something. I hope so, too. It's always my mission. So we're going to take a short break, and we're going to switch gears, and we're actually going to talk about a topic that I really thought long and hard about addressing on the show for a very long time because it's it's tough. Um, and uh, so I hope you will stay and continue with me, and we'll be right back.
we're back. You're listening to Fearless Fabulous You. I am your host, Melanie Young. You can follow me on Twitter at Mighty Melanie, Instagram at Melanie Fabulous. And I ask you to please check out my blog and my website to find out what I do to talk about and help you make healthier choices to live a happier life at MelanieYoung.com. My books are Getting Things Off My Chest, A Survivor's Guide to Staying Fearless and Fabulous in the Face of Breast Cancer. It's perfect for newly diagnosed women. And my second book is Fearless, Fabulous You, Lessons on Living Life on Your Terms. It provides five paths to help you get unstuck inside your head and step out and reclaim the life you want after a setback. They are both available on my website, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent bookstores. We're going to switch gears and talk about a subject I really grappled about having on this show, but... I have decided to, because it's important, and um, we're going to address it sensitively uh, with, a, with someone who really knows how to do this. Um, April is National Child Abuse Prevention Month, and the statistics are really kind of you know, scary. We read about this. We go, no, it's not going to happen, not in my backyard, not in my neighborhood, but it could. And one in six boys are sexually abused before age 16. One in five women have 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 um, experienced rape. Um, I don't see the statistics here on girls, but I'm going to assume it's one in five women could be a girl. And uh, we, you know, we know sexual harassment is in the news uh, daily now, and we read about and hear about children whose parents, you know, have chained them to beds and starved them and abused them, and you hear this like all the time, and you're like, what the hell is going on? But even more important, which is what I want to address here, is why didn't anybody speak up and say something and notice something was wrong? And that's what we're going to talk about here today is is how to understand if you think there's a problem, what you can do about it and how you should handle it so that nobody's lives are permanently damaged. I'm talking with Rachel Cologne a social worker who's been working with youths and families since 2004 in her current role as primary care social worker at the Mount Sinai Adolescent Center in New York City. Rachel provides psychosocial psychosocial assessment, short and long-term mental health therapy and health education services to at-risk adolescents, um, focusing specifically on young women with histories of abuse and trauma within an interdisciplinary setting. Now, we just had you know, and, and yet another kid go out and shoot people at the Waffle House in Nashville. We, I mean, it's like weekly now, okay? So we've got a lot of troubled kids. And it's a big problem for us adults. So Rachel, I want to thank you for joining me today to kind of tackle this as sensitively as we can with your incredible knowledge and experience. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I have to ask the why on this why do you think it seems so prevalent now is it is was it always there and nobody was talking about it or is it is are we like a, do we have like a really big problem with mental health and in, in our kids yeah totally i um and i'm in def- definitely in agreement with that i think that what has happened I'm, um is that mental health is very taboo um and no one really likes to talk about this stuff because it's really hard um, to talk about, and people are not aware of how to best manage it. Um, I also feel that children are one of the most vulnerable populations, which makes it, um, which makes them easy targets um, for violence and exploitation. And I feel that lack of adequate funding has prevented continued education and prevention. 
um, mm-hmm. including um, available funding to provide services um, after a child has been exposed to a trauma or has been exploited in addition to um, accessing services for any um, mental health concerns that they may be experiencing. Exactly. And, it, and it's so weird, mental, mental um, illness. Uh, it, it, nobody wants to talk about it. And yet, like, you read, you know, a kid kills himself, he kills somebody else, he goes into opioid addiction. I mean, it's it's just everywhere. I mean, I remember growing up, I mean, the worst thing that ever happened with us is we drank too much, we chewed gum. We got to chew gum. We got, you know, det- you know, I think the worst thing people ever did, but maybe one person got pregnant and we whispered about her and a couple of people got drunk. But but now, now, everybody's like, you know, opioids, Shooting each other, abusing each other, bullying—it's cray cray. Um, I I want to know this. The big thing is, people go, "How did it happen with the family next door?" And you asked that about like the the family that had oh those weirdos who had all those kids, chained them to the bed. Like what? What are signs that teachers or other moms, neighbors should be looking at? that should make them say, I should, I should say something. Yeah. Um, you know, here at the Mount Sinai Adolescent Health Center, one of the things that we do a lot is um, educate our communities about, um, you know, signs to look out for. What are some of the red flags? Um, and so, you know, for lay people who are not in this field, we really talk about, um, you know, some of the signs are that they can see in children are isolation, um, more withdrawal. I mean, because they feel that abuse can very can be very different um, in different situations, and doesn't really look the same for everyone that has experienced it. So, at times, it can be difficult if we're talking, for example, about a child who may be experiencing abuse, because it can definitely be more complicated. But like general signs are more so like decrease in friendships, um, academic um, struggles or and or failing um, in school, um, a more so protective child um, that's, I, you know, a lot of isolation um, and, like, depressive symptoms as well. Uh, like crying or, I mean, uh, you know, depressive I mean, symptoms like what? Or hair pulling, think, or no? <laughs> when they say depressive, um, depressive symptoms, more a child that's more a child that's more withdrawn, that's not um, in, engaging in friendships or socializing or engaging in pleasurable activities um, that they may have once enjoyed at some point in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll notice you'll notice a sh- definite shift in behavior. Mm-hmm. And then if you <clears throat> see somebody, and it's really hard because it's like not your child, right? So then you want to go, oh, I don't want to get, I don't want to get involved. What you know? Obviously, there are other signs as well. Like with the kids whose parents were not feeding them, they were they were dirty, they weren't bathed, they were hungry, they appeared hungry. Um, now that's that's a hard one, Rachel, because I read statistics that for many uh, children from low income, the only decent meal they get is at school. Yeah. So um, you got to. You got to weigh: Is it because they are disadvantaged uh, economically, or is is it, is it more? Um, and other signs, you know, like you know, broken arms, bruises, that type of thing. I mean, uh, but you got to be careful 
because they just may be rough and tumble kids. What should you as an adult do if you sense there's a problem with a child that's a friend of your child's or your own child, because it could be your child too, what, what should you do? Sure. Um, I think that, let's say, for example, is it's the neighbor's child, depending upon what your relationship is, because that is definitely something you have to take in mind, is being, if this is someone that you have a friendship with as an adult, just kind of approaching them and having, you know, just a general conversation, hey, if there's, an, if, you know, if there's anything I can do to best support you or help you, please let me know. Um, there are um, anonymous hotlines that you can reach out to, for example, the State Central Registry, to make an anonymous report if you feel that, they, that there is a child that is unsafe at the moment. Um, the family will not know that you've reached out and made that phone call because it is anonymous. However, it can allow you as a, as a person on the outside to kind of sleep at night knowing that you've made an effort towards increasing a child's safety. Mm-hmm. Um, as a parent, um, you know, if, so if you're talking about a child who you think may be experiencing some form of abuse, for example, if, you, it's a, if your child is involved in an abusive relationship, um, one of the things that you can, that you will notice again, is isolation from friends, um, not engaging in pleasurable activities, or that kid that once would stop and have a conversation with you before they went to school in the morning is now rushing out of the door and not engaging mm-hmm. with you anymore. Um, and I think that that's definitely something because, for example, a child who may be in a teen dating um, abusive relationship isn't going to, you're not going to realize that right away. Um, usually it, it's not, you know, a bruise, a scratch, um, or, you know, any other visible signs, um, you know, especially if it's physical abuse. If it's more so verbal, verbal can be very subtle. Um, and you may not be aware of it. With verbal abuse, there's like yelling, threats of violence, name-calling, humiliation, and guilt trips. Um, that as a parent, you may not even realize. Um, however, you'll realize it in that shift of behavior. And so, again, here at the Adolescent Health Center, we talk a lot with young people so that towards prevention of engaging in a relationship where they may experience violence of any sort, whether it's in, an, in a relationship or in, in, with an adult. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's tough, you know, because you, you worry about backlash. But um, I'm curious, uh, you work with the kids mm-hmm. at Mount Sinai, what, what, how do you help them? What, what kind of, what, what, did, what are you doing to lead the charge and help on the road to rehabilitation? Sure. I think that in work, in my work with the young people that we, that I see, um, I always, you know, remember that they have strengths and helping them get to a point where they are able to recognize their own strengths. Um, they're young, young, um, young people and just children in general, um, are very resilient. Um, and I feel that here at the center, we're able to bring that out in them by engaging them in conversation. I think that one of the things that we stand out with is that we speak adolescent. Um, and what that looks like is that we meet young people where they are at. 
And so that may mean social media platforms, for example, mm-hmm. Facebook, Instagram. Um, we also have um, a blog at teenhealthcare.org where we have um, this blog called You Asked It. And so young adults get to ask any questions, no matter how absurd they think they may be, um, and we answer them for them um, so that they get an idea and they can educate themselves um, about things or questions that they may have. Um, And I think that's, you know, in addition to the fact that this is a space where they feel welcomed because it's nurturing um, mm-hmm. and, be, and because we can provide them with services that they really need at this time. Well, you know, I think what you're doing is amazing and that there is a confidential place where people can go to get help is important. Um, are there any specific hotlines that you recommend? Um, sure. Um, there is, so for example, you know, you mentioned earlier that there are young people who are either, who are suffering from a mental health condition and mm-hmm. they may go ahead and commit suicide. There's the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Right. Um, here in New York City, we connect young people to um, a hotline called um, New York City Well. Um, there are, um, there are websites called, for example, loversrespect.org. Um, in addition, for parents who are seeking um, support and just learning more and how to, how to best support their child and or adolescent, um, they can also go on our website on www.teenhealthcare.org, and they can also follow us on Facebook at the Mount Sinai um, Adolescent Health Center. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And I will, for all of you listening, um, when I do my follow-up blog post about this, we'll list all the um, websites and toll-free numbers on my blog, which is Melanie. My web blog and website is melanieyoung.com, um, and I will repost it on my social media as well. Um, we all need to take a step back. We're all anxious. I mean, I was just reading an article last night. It was Town & Country Magazine. So it's a little like, oh, very, like, what am I going to do? What clinic should I go to? But like everybody's feeling high anxiety right now. This is probably the most anxiety. We are, as in a country, are at our most anxious. It's like ridiculous. And, um, you know, it's for many reasons. Stress, um, the economy, you think it's better, but you're not better off. The news, the fear of a war, the fear of this, all the gun violence, you name it. Let's talk about, in a little bit of time, a minute or two left, what what we can do to, to reduce our anxiety ourselves and what parents can do to set examples to help their kids feel less anxious. Sure. Um, you know, so I think that as adults um, and just and parents in general, um, I, you know, the children, we are our children's first teachers. And so they're always looking at us to see ways that they can manage their lives. So if we're not well and we have these young people who are seek, looking to us for support, um, then they're not. Uh, they're also not going to be well. So one of the things that I really tend to focus on, also just in support of parents and working with young people uh, who have young adults, um, mm-hmm. we talk about ways to kind of self care. Right? I'm not talking about manicures, bubble baths, um, and pedicures. I'm really talking about like taking care of your body. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, here at the Mount Sinai Adolescent Health Center, we talk a lot about 
how to take care of yourself with through mind, body, and spirit. So when we right. talk about body, we're talking about physical care. Are we making those annual physicals? Are we right. exercising? Are we sleeping well? Are we eating exactly. right? Um, and so it you know, if that's something that we're doing as adults and we have these young people looking to us for that support, if they see us doing it, guess what? They're also going to do that too. Well, know? I think this is and, a really great point. It's a really great way to um, conclude the conversation that taking care of yourself is the first step toward having a calmer more uh, fulfilled and balanced life and setting examples for your kids um, to do the same. We are the best examples. Rachel Colon, I want to thank you for joining me today on Fearless Fabulous You uh, and providing um, your insights um, as well. And as I said, I'll provide uh, hotlines and information at MelanieYoung.com. Until then, always stay fearless and fabulous. Taught and sacrifice to get what I get Ladies, it ain't easy being independent Question, how'd you like this knowledge that I brought? Bragging on that cash that he gave you as the front If you're gonna brag, make sure it's your money you front Depend on no one else to give you what you want Shoes on my feet